0: Do basically a live podcast with Dean Kissick and Carly Busta and ended up running into uh, Joshua Cidarella, Brad Trammell, Ben Mora and a ton of people that there's too many people to name <clears throat> wow. and it was yeah there is it was literally like a really small restaurant with as many people packed into it as possible like it was painful. Everyone was like, you know, everyone was like smashed in together. And I was just like, this is why they should have just done this at Madison Square Garden the whole time. And <laughs>
1: their bag left meetup at Madison Square Garden.
0: <laughs> so you uh and I read Conflict is not abuse. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really get to talk about it when we were with Sarah. And now we're gonna talk about it. Um well, we if did, like.
1: but I feel like Sarah was a little bit hesitant to um you know make any comparisons to the current cultural climate around um, um cancel culture and um rightfully so, considering uh, what kind of backlash you'll get in the same perpetual cycle of of um I don't know not actually fixing anything just right attacking each other
0: and so in the first chapter of the book um you know she says to us this is what anna's saying ultimately that the book is about palestine and so that's interesting because the palestinian israeli conflict is basically considered to be a conflict when it's actually just really damaging apartheid um what would you call it anna
1: um yeah, a, a apartheid, a, a militarized state in which one, one party has complete control of the other.
0: Totally. She also pointed out that there's multiple levels to the book, and this is pointed out in the first chapter. There's the personal, um, which is where the book starts out, which on and I are maybe the most interested in. And then there's the inner subject, intersubjective with groups that leads to the state and the the, the national slash geopolitical.
1: Israel, much like a um, self-victimizing uh, BPD bitch, is uh, claiming victimhood when they're actually the perpetrator.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is the case sometimes is that people are rationalized, rationalizing their violence and uh, their harsh treatment of others because they are victims and this is often the reason that I recommend this book to people um, is because uh, they are being harmed in some kind of way. They can't understand that kind of framework. And I think that that's helpful for this book.
1: She has a whole chapter on on borderline personality disorder as well, which is the real pandemic, as we all know.
0: <laughs> do you know what page that is?
1: I See, I listen to the audiobook, so I do have a physical copy as well, but...
0: Oh, amazing, yeah.
1: I don't know exactly where that was.
0: So I think one of the, the things that I liked from this book were when she kind of sets up the framework of where she got this from, this person named Makrim suggests that when we are in the realm of conflict, we can move from the abuse-based construction of perpetrator and victim to the more accurate recognition of the parties as the conflicted. So two people are in conflict, and... um each with legitimate concerns and rights that both need to be considered. So, if somebody's harming someone and they say, Well, I'm a victim, I can't harm somebody else, um, then th- this is a uh, reason for concern.
1: I did just find a quote about borderline. Um, there is a lashing out and punishment, acting out and blame, calling the police on an HIV positive sexual partner, organizing a community to shun and isolate a lover or friend dehumanizing of palestinians or other entire peoples or races these attributes of official definitions of borderline reveal both intense fear of difference and overreactions to difference as a projected threat to one's safety at their root is a refusal to alter one's self-perception of a threatened perfectionism
0: yeah there's this constant return to the idea that uh, perfectionism um, is is one of the issues that supr- supremacy people that are in control, that believe that they're better than others, uh, are always promoting. Um, and so Sarah says, perfection is never achievable. Positive change is always possible in the realm of uh, us influencing our friends, our community, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. And especially um, in a culture where, you know, you know, just in general, admitting any wrongdoing is not only seen as weakness, but also can be like punished. You can endanger yourself by um, addressing a situation and not, you know, claiming immediate victimhood. And I think that's why that's the instinct in so many relationships.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. There's actually this part in the book where um, there's research that shows that people that don't like to admit that they're wrong actually have a psychological psychological advantage. I'm trying to find it right now, but basically the research was showing that if you don't admit that you're wrong, then you, um, and I think it might be in the last chapter actually in the repair chapter. And I think this is something that a lot of people have always talked about. Like, don't admit that you're wrong because that gives the, you know, the people that are trying. Oh yeah, here it is. It's on uh, page 272 and 273. Um, so she's talking about how she had reached out to a group who she was in conflict with and uh, they were kind of all bullying her and like ganging up against her. It seemed like, and um, <clears throat> they assigned one person to represent the group as Uh, groups often do when they're all against one person and the person basically you know blames her for everything and she uh responds by saying i'm sorry it was uh during uh uh, a day of atonement yom kippur and uh the jewish holiday and um the person just responds by saying don't ever talk to us ever again (laughs) (laughs) like it just confirms (laughs) that they are right and so um if you want to read this part on it's on two seventy-three and it starts with reporting on this journalist Melissa Dahl cited. If you want to read that. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of like funny toxicity.
1: One sec. Um where does this so begin it's, on the page?
0: It's two seventy-three. Uh it's it's like uh in the first paragraph, a midway down um reporting on this. Okay.
1: Reporting on this, journalist Melissa Dahl cited recent studies revealing that digging in and refusing to admit an error feels pretty great. Yes, she quoted an Australian study published in 2013, which found that when people refused to acknowledge that they had made mistakes, they reaped more psychological benefits than those who caused their errors. (laughs) That's literally me online. The studies show that people who were to admit wrongdoing felt greater self-esteem and more in control than those who did apologize, even if they were liars. They were
0: liars.
1: Hell yeah. <laughs>
0: um, this is not Studies show
1: that being a delusional bitch is good for your health.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, so so I mean there's psychological benefits but I mean you still have to live with yourself right um (laughs) and so it goes on to this like this other thing about like the problems with certain types of apologies in this section and it's it's about this idea that uh we're so used to this like Christian style confession where like you repent and you feel guilty and you become abject you become this person who uh now is you know ready for punishment. You know you are a lowly person and you're repenting, um, but you know Schulman is pushing for something else. Says there is no martyrdom. There's only the recognition of reality, and that's it. It's factually correct. And so this idea that we um, apologize without feeling abject or without being the abject. Instead, said existing and the mutual potential responsibility between both groups. So I apologize. It gives you a, a chance to also maybe apologize or at least to recognize that, you know, we are both mutually responsible in some ways. Maybe not, you know, like ni- maybe it's 90-10%. Maybe it's 99-1%. But how- in what case is it ever zero and 100%? It's hardly ever that both people don't exist in some kind of mutual responsibility. And I think that's really interesting.
1: And I think that in order to, you know, reach a truth and like he- heal from conflict, it's just so necessary to to never, you know, n- never go coming out of a any any conflict um, thinking that one person is completely in the wrong or right is truly uh, insane and yeah, will not bring peace.
0: Yeah, because if you – I mean, to assume that somebody is, like, always completely wrong, you you feel like you're all-knowing. And that's that just comes from, like, the wrong place, you know? Of course – okay, so, of course, this book also, uh, you know, has to do with this idea of um, Karens calling the police on the state and playing victims as well. Like, that's, like, another example of that that I think everyone is familiar with, you know? Um like Anna, you call the cops on people like every day, right?
1: Yeah, only on my instant. <laughs> <laughs> only on my realtor, I call. I call the cops and then I put her on World Star.
0: Oh wait, you oh. didn't talk about that on the pod yet, did you?
1: Oh no, I didn't. My landlord selling my property. Long story short, my landlord's selling my property. He hired this crazy <laughs> realtor. She braided us with text messages in the middle of the night. And um, <laughs> we told her to wait one week to come to our home. And she came anyways, and she broke into the house. We got it on tape and um, we filed a police report against her. We called the cops on her.
0: I think I, mean, I think calling the cops like on, cough-
1: on the landlord and
0: Yeah, that's different. That's, <laughs> that's different. like there's like a power dynamic there.
1: I want Kong versus Godzilla but it's cops versus landlord. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, those that's the only woman I've ever called the cops on and she she's a white woman too. So. Right. It's Karen on Karen violence.
0: That was yeah, it's funny that like the most Karen world star is like you calling the police on your landlord. World star? <laughs> Ryan's yelling world star in the background. <laughs> It's so good, though. It's, like, the <laughs> best type of caroning, personally, to karen out on your landlord. Like, nobody ever... You know, most karens would, like, assume their landlord is the manager. So this is way better than that.
1: Anyways, what were you saying about... Co- oh, yeah, just p- the policing aspect. Yeah.
0: Of- Schulman says, oh. my thesis at many levels of human interaction, there is the opportunity to conflate discomfort with threat, to mistake internal anxiety for exterior danger and in turn to escalate rather than to resolve.
1: Yeah, she had a, a whole section that I I noted in the, it, the, the title of it was just criminalizing the human experience, um, in which she went on to talk about how um, HIV positive individuals were criminalized, being a person who would have um, unprotected sex, um, you know, would be criminalized. And um, it, like being infected with HIV or, you know, th- this is a, a, a topic she talks a lot of a lot about in the book. Policing the person who who may like may have done this uh, bad thing is literally not going to result in any healing from the actual physical virus <laughs> that you've received. And therefore, you know, calling calling the police on people and sort of getting that sort of revenge is not a, you know, viable, healthy solution to conflict.
0: Right. She <clears throat> Often um, she's talking about this idea of, uh, you know, the distance we have with our neighbors, with people that, you know, are maybe gay, queer, trans, who um, are being impacted by, uh, you know, the HIV epidemic, or Palestinians, you know, um, being othered by this, the Israeli uh, military state. All of these things disrupt the idea of of treating people like humans um and so she says nothing disrupts dehumanization more quickly than inviting someone over looking them into the eyes hearing their voice and listening um and this is supported by research because there's a research study showing that if people uh were actually in community with each other um and this is in the first chapter too, I believe, that they were less likely to um, have conflict in the first place.
1: So Schulman writes that Tom Bartlett, writing in the Chronicle of Higher Education in July of 2015, memorialized the massacre at the Bosnian town of, I have no idea how to pronounce
0: it yeah, maybe, yeah.
1: Srebrenica, I apologize. That's pretty good, yeah, close enough. By reviewing some recent research by social psychologists studying conflict resolution. The findings seem obvious and yet are rejected by many people. More contact between groups reduces prejudice. Bartlett continues. The status of the groups must be respected as equal. Those in authority must be supportive. The contact must be more than superficial. Um, she also wrote that even imagining positive scenarios with in your head, like, Creating mm-hmm. scenarios in your head with um, g- groups that you may be um, in conflict with, um, it like positively affects the human psychology to sort of be more understanding of the other side.
0: Could you give us an example of that? Uh, maybe in the case of uh, those impacted by AIDS. It's imagining a, that they're I mean, like in having a community capacity? with mean,
1: having a friend with AIDS, <laughs> like
0: <laughs> uh, you know, like the Republicans. Sh- And, you know, even some Democrats, you know, and like a lot of Republicans
1: actually put themselves um, out there by, you know, having sex with male prostitutes. You know, a lot of Republican men do that as a way to empathize with (laughs) the gay community. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Real immersion right there.
0: Right. Yeah, totally. Totally. (laughs) But I th- I think one of the I think one of the examples uh, that Shulman gives is like, uh, actually, I don't know if she says this, but it's kind of implied that basically say that, like, during the same period, you know, you have gay men who are uh, able to be spokespeople for kids who don't have, you know, queer mentors and uh, having queer people able to speak about their experience. And then also, I mean, of course, like challenge the status quo. I mean, as they did with ACT UP, like them basically taking the reins of power as an activist group and making people aware of their situation was forcing the imagination on people, which I think that's also an interesting angle, forcing people to see their suffering. Do you want to shift to how this maybe relates to how we see conversations happening online now that we kind of have the basis for everyone? Um, We've kind of established the basis yeah, I think
1: that we probably exist in the most um, in an in an environment where communication is so overly critical, especially online. And uh, Schulman talks a lot about how you know email and text, and now that we have this this was like I mean this this book came out when social media was in full course but it's basically like we're we're only more and more online every day communication is stunted and like there's a lack of empathy in the way that we communicate um in this manner because it's unnatural um and i think that that definitely affects um you know we 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 fail to see the human in each other and we are overly critical of every everyone we don't we don't put a human face to you know the people we criticize online especially me (laughs) (laughs) more
0: than yeah (laughs) um yeah no i mean there's it's a really hard time i think for people i i think that originally we thought the internet was a place for community and i think more nowadays it seems like it's a double-edged sword in that sense where like yes i've i think i can meet like the most niche compatible people with my own interests and i really value that but at the same time like anytime i write anything something gets completely taken out of context and uh and many times i think most of the internet is you know in a way against us because there's just so many uh different types of opinions that constantly are, are like uh, ratioing everyone especially you like you it seems like people love to like interact in like a hate watching kind of way um where they're like interacting with you to like mess with you or something right i'm,
1: I'm just like jesus really um <laughs> yeah of, of course maybe you're like kanye there's a there's a a, a culture of of narcissism that exists in which we we don't allow for self-critique and therefore um you know hold hold our opinions and differences as as fact and refuse to allow um you know differing opinions on basically everything
0: yeah i i do think that a lot of the people who are often attacking others don't create the space for the mutualism where If you say, well, I have this issue with you and they say, I have this issue with you where you can both talk about that. It's more that you have to acknowledge just their problem with you. So that's kind of like the breakdown is like there's no mutual space created. It's like literally people just coming after you and like you're completely wrong and they're perfect. And that's the narcissistic idea. I think you're getting up.
1: Yeah, it's also just not a healthy way to communicate or a productive way to communicate. You know, coming from a place of of love and empathy and trying to understand, even if you feel victimized, is just so much more productive, you know?